Reading from Mark chapter 8, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And when he went to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? Because, sorry, before the time. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast me out, cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Thanks, Hannah. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we come to this part of his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Please give us understanding as we look at it together now. And Lord, please work through it to grant us and grow us in faith in Jesus and change us to be more like him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Focus. That would be a good word to describe the life of Fabiano Caruana. Fabiano learned to play chess at age five and started training with his first coach at age six. He became an international chess grandmaster by age 14, the youngest grandmaster in US history. He is now ranked number two in the world. Now at this level, chess is actually a pretty serious sport. The stress and mental energy that grandmasters expend during a tournament is extreme. During a 10-day tournament, they can lose 5 to 10 kgs. They experience high blood pressure at the level of marathon runners. During a two-hour chess game, a grandmaster can burn as many calories as Roger Federer would in an hour of tennis. And so Fabiano trains. Every day he practices chess moves for a few hours, he fits in an eight-kilometre run, tennis and basketball, an hour of swimming, 
He's taken up yoga as a way of dealing with the stress of tournaments. Fabiano's whole life is focused around chess. Apart from watching the occasional movie to relax, he spends most of his time staring at chess games and memorising moves. He's always working towards the next game. Here's what he says about how he works. The general advice which I've always been given is just to apply myself very consistently regardless of what my results are. If I'm doing well, to apply myself just as much as if I was doing badly. Not to become complacent. This is something which is difficult because when you achieve something, you feel like the work is done, but the work never is really done. Fabiano's absolute focus is chess, and the work is never done for him. You know, Jesus actually calls us to a focused life like that, but not a life focused on chess. Not a life that's about our success or glory or victory, a life that's focused on following him. That's what we see here in Matthew 8. But we don't get that call without also seeing the reason why. In this passage, Matthew shows us three stories of Jesus' ultimate authority and how those around him respond to that authority. And these responses show us that Jesus' ultimate authority calls for our ultimate allegiance and trust. We're going to see fair-weather disciples who are challenged by Jesus. We're going to see storm-tossed disciples who see Jesus' power firsthand. And we're going to see no-way disciples who respond to Jesus' authority by sending him away. So let's dive in. It all starts with two fair-weather disciples. Uh, Last week, we saw Jesus' absolute authority and power to heal. We watched Jesus heal the unclean, the outsider, the unable, and the many. And these miracles showed us not just Jesus' power over sickness, but his authority and power to deal with sin. And we saw how people responded to Jesus' authority and power with faith. And now, Jesus, the one with authority and power, issues a command. Verse 18... Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. This might look like simple, ordinary instructions, but the word here for gave orders is really strong. Jesus commands it. And when the one with ultimate authority commands it, you obey. And at first, it seems like that's what happens. Verse 19, a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. The scribes were the experts in the Old Testament because they were basically human photocopiers. This guy knows God's word and he's keen. Jesus says, let's go. And he jumps up and says, yes, sir, wherever you go, I will follow. But he seems a little too eager. And Jesus' answer must have surprised him. Verse 20, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus challenges this guy with some realism. Jesus, the Son of Man, has no permanent place to call home. He gets gets put up in the houses of others, but his mission of proclaiming and demonstrating the good news of the kingdom will keep him on the move. See, following Jesus is going to be far from comfortable. 
It's, going, it's not going to be a life of glory and popularity. It's going to mean suffering. It's going to be costly. And Jesus isn't interested in fair-weather followers. He wants this guy to count the cost, to realise it's going to be hard, and then to commit. Jesus' ultimate authority calls for our ultimate allegiance, even when it's not going to be comfortable or safe. We're not told this guy's reaction, but we do hear about another disciple. And if the scribe was too quick to agree to follow Jesus, this guy is too slow. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus' answer is shocking, but he's making a point. This guy wants to delay. He has higher priorities to bury his father. Now, it's possible that when he says this, his father isn't even dead yet. In those days, you were supposed to bury someone within 24 hours of their death. If his father is already dead, what is he doing here with Jesus anyway? So it might be that he's wanting to delay, to wait for his father to die, to bury him, and then to follow Jesus. But whether his father is dead already or not, Jesus' answer stands. Jesus calls this man for this man's ultimate allegiance. And Jesus' answer is shocking, purposely shocking. Follow me, leave the spiritually dead to bury their own dead. It's not that Jesus doesn't want this man to honour his father and mother. God's word commands that. But the call to follow Jesus is something greater even than honouring father and mother. Following Jesus is meant to be a higher priority even than family. We're going to see that elsewhere in Matthew. Jesus' coming will divide families. Some will follow him and some will not. And, we have to make a, and where we have to make a call between Jesus and our family, the call must be Jesus every time. Jesus' ultimate authority calls for ultimate allegiance. And this is true for us too. Following Jesus should be our greatest focus, our highest allegiance. Now, often these things won't be in conflict for us. Often, following Jesus will mean honouring our parents and caring for our family. But here in this case, the man is putting off a clear command of Jesus because of his family, and we are not to do that. This is a strong example that actually proves a greater rule. How often do we let other things trump following Jesus? or at least distract us. It might not be family, it might be, not, might be work commitments or career ambition or a desire for financial security. You might be watching that Netflix show you know you shouldn't because you're just so interested in the storyline, not speaking about, out about Jesus because you want to be popular and respected. But often it's not the bad things that distract us from following Jesus, it's the good things that we allow to become ultimate things. I heard one pastor say once that whenever he hears about a congregation member planning to renovate their own house, he just expects them not to be involved in the church family much in the next two to three years. He expects that they'll become more absorbed in the project than loving and serving others. He's seen it time and time again. That's a good thing that's become an ultimate thing. 
Jesus is calling us to a focused life. Following him is not like your gym membership that you put up and put down. It's not a hobby that you add on to your life. It's not something you do on Sundays and ignore for the rest of the week. That doesn't mean we can't care for families, have careers, renovate houses, enjoy hobbies, but we must never let these things become the ultimate things. We must always watch out for things that pull our focus away. Jesus is calling for our ultimate allegiance and he deserves it because he is the one with ultimate authority, God's promised king, the one who now rules at God's right hand. But not only that, but he's our saviour and following him with this kind of focus, it's actually for our good. He is the gentle king who loves us and gave himself up for us and we can trust him. We see a picture of that next. We go from from seeing fair-weather disciples to seeing storm-tossed disciples. Unlike those fair-weather disciples, these disciples simply obey. They listen to Jesus' command and they hop in the boat. But following Jesus isn't a guarantee of smooth sailing. Things start to get pretty hectic. Verse 24. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Now, the Sea of Galilee isn't actually that big. It's more like a lake, really, a very deep lake. Going to the other side is probably only a one- or two-hour trip. But while they're on their way, a huge storm sweeps in. Imagine the wind howling, the waves tossing the boat back and forward, and the boat is starting to fill up. The disciples are terrified. And some of these guys are seasoned fishermen, men who had spent their lives on this lake. It would take a lot to freak them out. Jesus is with them, but he's conked out in the back of the boat. Now, as an aside, we see a little glimpse here of Jesus' humanity, don't we? He really did take on flesh. He really is human like us. After a big day of teaching and healing, he's exhausted. And he uses this opportunity for a nap. See, napping is biblical. (laughs) But the situation for the disciples is dire. The disciples do the only thing that they can think of. They run to Jesus for help, verse 25. And they went and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Their cry here echoes the cries of those we saw last week, those who cried out to Jesus to heal them. They called Jesus Lord too. This is a response of faith from the disciples. But their terror also reveals the littleness of their faith. Verse 26, And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? See Jesus' ultimate authority here? All it takes from Jesus is a word. He stands up, rebukes the wind and the sea, and the sea is instantly calm. Matthew calls it a great calm. As great and powerful as the storm was, there is now a great and powerful calm. 
Now, if you think about it, this is actually pretty amazing. The ocean can take hours, even days, to calm down after a big storm. The water keeps on moving even after the storm is finished. But the miracle here is not just stopping the storm. The sea is instantly calmed, smooth and safe. Now, the ancient Jews were land lovers by nature. They hated the sea. They saw it as a place that belonged to the forces of evil and chaos. And so Jesus isn't only showing his power over nature here, he is showing his power over the forces of evil and chaos too. The disciples are amazed. Who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? They would have been thinking of the Old Testament. Verses like Psalm 107, 29 and 30. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Who has the power to command the sea and make the storm be still? It's the Lord, Yahweh, the God who created the universe, who saved his people out of Egypt with ten plagues, the God who brought them through the Red Sea on dry land. He is the one who has the power over the sea. No wonder the disciples are amazed. This man they are in the boat with is none other than the God of Israel, God the Son himself the one with ultimate authority over all things because he made and rules all things. And that ultimate authority calls for their ultimate allegiance and their ultimate trust. That's why Jesus rebukes them. You see, they did the right thing by responding to their fear by running to Jesus in faith. And they were saved. Jesus stilled the storm and rescued them. It's not the size of their faith that saves them, it's who their faith is in. Jesus, the one with ultimate authority and power. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for coming to him, he rebukes them for their fear. See, if they'd been paying attention so far, they would have known they had two very good reasons not to be afraid. First, Jesus is God's promised king, the Messiah. He's come to bring about the kingdom. If they'd figured that out, they would have known that God wouldn't let his king die in some boating accident. Because they were with Jesus, they were safe. But second, they've just heard the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6, Jesus said that those of his kingdom don't need to be anxious and fearful about the future because their heavenly Father... The same God who cares for the sparrows and the grass of the field is caring for them. He knows their needs. He loves them. They don't need to be anxious because they can trust his care for them. The disciples don't need to be afraid, even in this horrible storm, because Jesus is with them and their heavenly Father is caring for them. If they'd realised that, they wouldn't be so afraid, even of death. Their problem is not a lack of faith altogether, it's that their little faith means they are living in fear when they don't need to. They are making their own lives hard. Jesus' ultimate authority means they can live with ultimate trust in him. And it's true for us too. We have a saviour who loves us and a heavenly father who's watching over us. 
We don't need to live in fear when we can live in faith and dependence on him. We know that doesn't mean bad things won't happen to us. We live in a fallen world. We'll still get sick and struggle in relationships. We'll still wrestle with depression and anxiety. We'll be tempted. We'll even face death. But even then, we can trust God's care for us. We can trust that Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age. We can trust that he will give us all the grace and comfort and strength that we need. We can trust that none of our suffering is pointless or wasted. He is working for our good and his glory as he shapes us to be more and more like Jesus. And we don't need to fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, we can trust that nothing will bring us ultimate harm, but our lives and souls are held safely by a heavenly Father who loves us deeply. That's our assurance if we trust in Christ. And regardless of how small or struggling our faith is, we can run to Jesus. Run to him knowing that he is the one who is strong, he is the one who has saved us, he is the one who watches over us and sustains us and he will bring us safely home. That doesn't depend on how big or strong our faith is. It depends on simply on who Jesus is the one with ultimate authority and power. Which brings us to our final story. From storm-tossed disciples to no-way disciples. Jesus arrives at the other side of the sea, and this is Gentile territory. Another hint that Jesus' ministry is not going to be just for Israelites. And here as well, Jesus is confronted by the forces of evil and chaos. Verse 28. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The Gentiles in this place are living in spiritual darkness, and the demons living amongst them are the sign of that darkness. These guys are so fierce, so powerful, that no one can go past that way. But they are no match for Jesus. They even recognize who he is better than the disciples do. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. They recognize his authority and power as judge. You can almost hear the fear in their voices. But just recognizing who Jesus is isn't enough. They know who Jesus is and they are his enemies. Knowing good theology, knowing the Bible, knowing about Jesus isn't enough. It's about responding to Jesus with faith. Jesus does show his power over these demons, but he also listens to their request. Verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. Behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. This is a weird story, right? Why do the demons want to go into the pigs? Well, they don't say. Maybe it's because they want to destroy God's creation. Maybe it's because they see a way to stir up trouble for Jesus in that area. Either way, Jesus lets them, which is also weird. 
But, but I think Jesus is doing the same thing that he did at the beginning of our passage with our fair-weather disciples. By shocking the people of that region, Jesus is exposing the true inclination of their hearts. He is showing how they will respond to his ultimate authority. He has come, and this is actually showing his ultimate authority. These powerful demons, the ones no one else could stop, Jesus simply says one word and they obey him. He is powerful over the forces of evil and chaos. He has come to shine the light of the kingdom into the spiritual darkness that these people are living under. And so how do they respond to Jesus' spiritual authority? Well, first, things look really good. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. These herdsmen seem like amazing evangelists. They run into the city, they tell everyone about what Jesus has done. They must have given everyone a sense of Jesus' ultimate authority. And the city responds, the whole city comes out to meet Jesus. Sounds good, right? Not so much. Look at the last part of verse 34. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. There's no doubt that this people has seen who Jesus is. They've seen his ultimate authority in action, but they don't want him. Jesus is a threat to their way of life. They would prefer to have their pigs than to have Jesus. They are no way disciples. They don't pay Jesus lip service or put him off until later. They outright reject him. The ultimate allegiance and trust that Jesus' authority calls for is too much for them. Maybe you're someone who has seen who Jesus is, but you haven't responded to him in faith. Are you choosing your own autonomy over Jesus? Are you choosing your sin over Jesus? Is it a relationship you don't want to give up or a way of life that seems too hard to you? Is it that the call of Jesus just seems too hard? Jesus is the one who can give you life. Jesus is God the Son, come in flesh, living the perfect life we could never live, dying the death that we deserve and rising from the dead in victory. He did it for us, even when we were his enemies, because he loves us and wants what's truly good for us. Whatever you choose over Jesus will disappoint you. Relationships won't satisfy you. Your own autonomy will smash up against the limits of the real world. Sin will lead to sorrow and death and pain. Only Jesus, our good and gentle King, can give you real life, life to the full. Don't be like the Gadarenes. Don't see who Jesus is and reject him outright. It's true, following Jesus will be costly. But what you gain is infinitely more. Trust him. But I want to say too, this passage also helps set our expectations as we share the gospel with others. As we seek to help people meet Jesus this year, sometimes people respond to the gospel by rejecting who Jesus is. They see who he is and they turn away. 
They reacted this way to Jesus himself. And they will react that way to us. This year, we're wanting to help those around us meet Jesus. We're praying for them. We have a chance to invite them to the John drama or read the Bible with them. Some of them are going to say no. Some of them will turn away. Don't be discouraged. This is one of the normal ways that people react to Jesus. And they will react that way to us. Instead, keep praying that God will soften their hearts and bring them to faith in him. And keep inviting people. You might be surprised what God does in their lives. Focus. It's not just a word that should describe world-ranked chess players. It should describe us too. Those who respond to the ultimate authority of Jesus with our ultimate allegiance and trust. Those who count the costs and put Jesus first. Those who trust in Jesus' authority and care even when things go wrong. And those who don't reject Jesus but turn to him as the one with ultimate authority over evil and chaos. Come, let's follow our gentle king and give him our ultimate allegiance and trust. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his power and authority. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for where we have allowed other things to become ultimate things in our lives. For where we have had our focus on responding to Jesus' authority with allegiance and trust turned away. Lord, please work in our hearts that we might respond to Jesus and follow him above all else. Please help us to remember his authority, to remember his kindness and grace and mercy to us and to live our lives for him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.